Would you open to John chapter 20? Very beginning of John chapter 20. We'll mostly be here today in this chapter, but we'll move to a couple of other scriptures also. Today, I titled this sermon, Believe Because. Jesus' resurrection is the benchmark for belief. That means that if you are to be saved, you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. How much do you believe in Jesus? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And if that is the case for you, the scripture says to you that you shall be saved. So we rejoice today. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but it is also the mark of our faith. I pray today for you to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus, that you would give him your life, that he would be your Lord. And when I say believe because, first of all, um, believe because of the personal. God has personally reached out to you. He has personally pursued you. And today we will study that through the life of Mary Magdalene. I also say believe because of the persecuted. Many have given their lives. Many were tortured because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And last of all, we should believe because of the prophecies. There's so much in the word of God. There are so many reasons for us to believe. But it is faith. It is faith indeed. If you've already believed unto salvation, this will be a time of equipping for you. It's a time for you to get ready You and I need to be explaining, believe because Jesus has personally reached out to you because he has pursued you. You can share that through your own testimony. Learn how to share your faith and make people understand this is what the apostles went through because they believed. What courage? That courage came from Christ. And last of all, know your prophecy because Really, if anybody gets into the Bible, if you dare study it, if you dare to see the prophetic, it will cause you to believe. Have you really looked into it? Do you see all that was spoken about Jesus and how he then came and fulfilled every bit of it? John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary came to the tomb. We know from the other gospels that she was not alone. Other women were with her. When she gets there, the stone is rolled away. Not only is a stone rolled away, but from the other gospels, we learn that angels appeared to her and that they announced to her and the other women what we read in Mark 16, 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So even though Mary and her sisters, the other women, saw that Jesus' body was, was gone, And even though they were told by the enemy or by the angels that Jesus had risen, they still believed that his enemies had stolen his body. So they run to tell Peter and John that Jesus 
is missing. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So Peter and John come in and they see the linen strips just lying there. Did you notice that the burial cloth, which would have covered Jesus' face, is folded up neatly? And it appears that Jesus just passed through the linens. We don't know for sure if they were unraveled or still raveled, somewhat collapsed, um, because his body was gone, he had risen. But consider the difference between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus came out, as Jesus called him, Lazarus, come forth, come forth, and he was still bound, wasn't he? Like, like a mummy, he came hopping out of his tomb. But Jesus didn't need any help being resurrected. He didn't need any help with the linens. There they are, the burial cloth neatly folded, the linen wraps lying there. Note that John and the other gospel writers are very clear about the importance of the empty tomb. This was not just a, a spiritual survival. This is the real resurrection of the body. But now look, the disciples go back to their homes. The scriptures tell us here that John did understand that Jesus had risen from the grave, yet he does not immediately begin to broadcast that. He goes home. I'm thinking about how Jesus' mother Mary was at his home at this time. Because in chapter 19, if you back up, we know that Jesus told John, take Mary. Did he tell Mary that Jesus' body was missing, that Jesus had risen from the dead? We don't know. But we know they went to their houses. Peter, it doesn't seem like he understood yet that Jesus had risen from the dead. He too went home. They go back to their houses after seeing the empty tomb. Now go to verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. But Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. What an amazing reunion. She comes thinking that his corpse has been carried off. She thinks he's, that she's talking to the gardener, and then he says her name. Did you notice that? He says, Mary, and she answers back and says, teacher. She was overwhelmed with grief at first, and then she was overwhelmed with joy. And then she just latches on to Jesus. We, if we read on, he says, don't cling to me. She grabs onto him. Isn't that what you would have done? It's what I think I would have done. <laughs> I'm not going to lose you again, right? You're alive. Mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus. Believe because of the personal. Jesus doesn't do things on accidents. We do things on accident at times. Very intentional that he revealed himself, that he showed himself to Mary Magdalene first. Jesus wasn't just walking around the garden, the risen king, and saying to himself, well, I wonder who's going to show up first. Whoever comes, I guess I'll talk to them and tell them that I've risen from the grave. No, Peter and John had already been there, and they didn't see Jesus. He had risen. Jesus waited, and he intentionally showed himself to Mary, and he even asked her two questions before her eyes were opened to his identity. He was very purposeful about this. Why Mary? Well, we don't know for sure, but I want you to remember Mary's past. I want to tell you about Mary's past if you don't know already. Before Jesus, she was demon-possessed. Yes, Matthew was a hated tax collector, and Simon was a zealot, and Peter and, and John were fishermen. But it's hard to beat the testimony of being previously demon-possessed. Consider all that Jesus was to her. He was her light. He was her hope. And now her hope was dead. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he revealed himself to Mary. Because you know how it is. It's easy to go back to your old sin, isn't it? Once you've been there, just like three of you shook your heads. <laughs> it's easy to go back to your old ways, to your old sin, to go back into that darkness, to lose hope. In fact, sometimes we can find ourselves back there in just a moment. But consider the darkness that she was facing when Jesus died. She watched Jesus hang on the cross and suffer. That's not true of all the disciples. All four Gospels record that she saw her Lord, her Savior, her Deliverer crucified in front of her eyes. And now Jesus has defeated death, and he sees fit to show himself to Mary, to speak her name. Believe because of the personal. Jesus is calling your name. Yes, he died for the sins of the world. His grace is enough for all of us. But he is a personal God who gave his life for you and is saying, come to me, just the way he called Mary. Will you respond? Because he desires to take the blinders off of your eyes. He knew that she needed it. Even in the revelation of his resurrection, Jesus was going after one. Isn't that amazing? Yes, he reveals himself to way more, as we read from 1 Corinthians to 500 people at once. But he reveals himself so personally, so individually. If you will pay attention, you will see 
that God has been pursuing you for a long time. That maybe you've been distracted. Maybe you've been off course, but he hasn't been off course. His course is to go out and find. His course is to go out and redeemed and redeem. He is the seeker. You and I are not the seekers. Once we're saved, we're told to seek the Lord. But in our sin, we're lost and we're wandering. He is the one who comes after us. And look at Jesus coming after Mary. Jesus is never early and he's never late. Today, Jesus wants to reveal himself to you, to show you that he is the resurrected king. If you're a believer and you're weak, he can be your strength once again. He wants you to see clearly again. He wants you to come to him. You're redeemed. You're the redeemed. He is your savior. If you're unsaved, let him save you. If you're lost, he wants to find you. Just as amazing as his power over death is his care, his intricate care for us. Yes, I'm amazed. How, how can God Almighty breathe life into existence? How can he bring the dead back to life again? How did he defeat death? It's mind-boggling. But also, this mighty God is so intimate in his care for us. I see it in the life of Mary, and we could have done the same thing with the other disciples. Wake up today and see him for who he is. Now, Mary did not initially understand did she? The significance of the empty tomb? She was so sad. She's standing there crying as Peter and John go home. She sees the angels. She tells them that they've taken Jesus' body away. Mark mentions that she sees a young man dressed in a white robe, an angel. Matthew speaks of an angel. John here tells us there was more than one. But the presence of the angels at the tomb testifies to the fact that this was not just a disappearance of Jesus' body. It was divine intervention. And these two angels ask Mary, why are you crying? And she assumes the body has been stolen. She turns around, and she saw Jesus standing there. The scriptures tell us here that she didn't realize at first that it was Jesus I don't know if that's because Jesus' resurrected body looked different in some way or because Jesus was the last person she expected to see or because she was just bawling and, and couldn't see that clearly. But then her eyes were cleared and she clung to Christ. Today, believe because of the personal. Not just because of Jesus' personal pursuit of Mary Magdalene, but because of his personal pursuit of you. Now, after Jesus got up from the grave, after he snapped the seal on the tomb, Mary saw him risen. Cleopas, one of the two on the road to Emmaus, they saw Jesus and their hearts burned within them as Jesus taught them on the road. The risen king teaching them, just going out to two guys as they were pondering what had happened in Jerusalem. Jesus' crucifixion. Then he appears to the 11 in the upper room. Later on, he has a fish barbecue on the beach with his disciples. He appears to, shows himself to hundreds of people at a time, many eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. These are the confirmed facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus. But I submit to you that you should also believe because of the persecuted. 
You might be reading on and saying, well, how can we confirm this? How do we know that Jesus' disciples aren't just fabricating stories? How do we know that they're not saying these things in order to fool people? How do we know they're not just faking it? There will be a doubt placed in your mind by the enemy that says, this is nothing more than mythology. There will be a doubt placed in there by the enemy that says, how is this different than Roman mythology or Greek mythology? I'm going to tell you there's a huge difference. Consider this. What would it take for you to believe the testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection? What kind of stand would they have to make? What would they have to go through in order for you to believe that they were really telling the truth? What if they put their lives on the line? What if they were willing to die for the truth that Jesus is risen? Not just say it, but they were willing to give their lives. All of the apostles died martyrs' deaths, except for John. And they tried to kill John, but the Lord preserved him. They were filleted alive, they were crucified. Peter crucified with his wife. They were stoned. They were dipped in boiling oil because they would not say that Jesus was dead, because they would not say that Jesus had not risen. They knew, they preached, read the book of Acts, they preached the risen Christ. All they had to do was say, Jesus isn't alive anymore, and they would have been off the hook. How many people will die for the truth? Not many. There aren't a lot of people who have the courage to die for the truth. How many people will die for a lie? Now, I recognize there are those who will die for a fake faith. There have been martyrs of other false religions, have there not? But how many people would die for a lie that they know they made up? Maybe one in 12? How about 12 out of 12? Willing to die for what they knew was true. Believe because of the persecuted. What a powerful record we have. One statement, and it could have been released. Why did they do it? Why were they willing to lay down their lives? Because it was and is the truth, and that truth remains. Listen to what John wrote at the beginning of his epistle. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John is saying to me and to you, I saw Jesus. We saw Jesus. We laid our eyes on him. We laid our hands on him. We know he's alive. Jesus said, come and touch. Didn't he to Thomas? Come and touch my hands and put your hand in my side. See that I am risen. So they were anchored in that reality. Finally, let's go back in our Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 23. Believe because of the personal, believe because of the persecuted, but believe because of the prophetic. John chapter 12, verse 23. This is right after Jesus entered Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. We've read this verse over the last week. Now let's learn a bit of its meaning. John 
12, 23, and 24. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Seed is buried. Why is a seed purposefully buried? So that it may spring to life and produce much fruit, right? And what's the ratio? When one seed is planted, does it just produce one seed? Speaking of grain here, speaking of wheat, one pound of wheat seed produces about 90 pounds of, of wheat, that little kernel or that, that berry. So everything must die to rise again. The seed gives up its life so that it can be resurrected later on in greater majesty. That's what Jesus is teaching, isn't it? He's talking about his death and his resurrection in verse 24, isn't he? That he is the good seed that falls into the ground, that he dies, but then bursts forth in life to produce much grain. This was the week of Passover, but it was also the week of first fruits. And we have often fo focused on the Passover because Jesus is our Passover lamb. But Jesus is using the second feast also, the feast of first fruits, to teach about his resurrection, isn't he? He used the Passover to teach about his death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he uses the feast of first fruits to speak of his resurrection. So they were packed into Jerusalem for these two feasts. Jesus ties himself to the feast of first fruits, him being the good seed who is planted in the ground and then bursts forth in victory. Now, originally, God gave Israel the feast of first fruits to come and to remember the beginning or to tell God thank you for the beginning of the growing season, springtime, to acknowledge that the Lord was providing for their needs or would provide for their needs through the, the fruit of the ground. And this feast is described in Leviticus. I read to you from Leviticus 23, 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So on the first day of first fruits, the priest would lift up that branch of the first fruits before the Lord, signifying that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord. You may know that most cultures, many cultures and civilizations have a springtime celebration because of the beginning of the growing season, signifying we're planting these seeds in the ground. And so this is how Easter came to be used for Christ's resurrection day. By 580 BC, both Judah and Israel had been taken into captivity. The Babylonians now controlled their lives. And the Babylonians celebrated Ishtara, the goddess of fertility. So even hundreds of years before the resurrection of Christ, Ishtara, Easter, was celebrated at the same time as the Feast of First Fruits. 
the Jewish people celebrating first fruits in Babylon and the Babylonians celebrating Easter. I so much prefer Resurrection Day, although I don't freak out because it's true that Easter originally being the pagan name, was celebrated with the Feast of First Fruits hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth, died, and rose again. Because our celebration is based on a lot more than just springtime, isn't it? It's based on spiritual life. It's based on eternal life. And as we plant, it's supposed to be a picture or an understanding of that seed is Jesus, the good seed going into the ground. And I know what's going to come from that seed, so much more than just what I put in the ground, Jesus returning to life. So we have the Feast of First Fruits. Look at how Jesus fulfilled everything about the Feast of First Fruits. We won't go into the whole thing, but this branch was lifted up over the altar by the priest. That is Jesus being lifted up. The blood sacrifice came first, right? The Passover. And then after that, the grain sacrifice came, the feast of first fruits. And was there any blood shed in the resurrection? No, the blood was shed at the cross. And then the thanksgiving comes at the feast of first fruits. Consider the day. Did you notice when we read from Leviticus that first fruits was to be observed on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover? What day is that? Today, right? And Jesus rose from the grave on that exact day, the day of first fruits, the day when that branch was waved over the altar. How perfect is that? Crucified on the Passover as the lamb, resurrected on the day of first fruits. Not coincidence. Carefully given by God prophetically for Jesus to fulfill every piece. The bloodless grain offering because no more sacrifices are necessary. He is the once and for all sacrifice. No more Passover, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No need to sacrifice. The first fruit of grain meant that there would be more harvest to come. Multiplication. Who is that? Jesus planted in the ground. Are we not a result of the first fruit? of Christ's death and resurrection. That's why it says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we have the word of God telling us that Jesus gave his life and rose from the grave so that we could be the second fruits, so that we could be the fruit of eternal life to come. Take the step to believe in the risen Lord. It is personal. I see that in his word. I hope you understand that his spirit is calling to you. Believe because of the personal. Believe because of the persecuted. Look at the history. Know that they died for truth, not a lie. They died so that this word might be preserved to us. And then looking at the prophecies, and there's so many more, of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets. Take that step to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is why we gladly and expectantly read, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory?
It's wonderful to worship the Lord. It's wonderful to lift up our voices to him. There's so many ways that we can serve him, and that's one of the ways that we do it. But knowing that our faith in the Lord is everything to us. If you've come to this place today and, and faith seems foreign to you, I submit to you that you're believing in someone right now, that you're believing in something right now, and that it is not worthy of your faith the way that Jesus is. That Jesus is the one who deserves your life because he gave his life for you. That he imparts truth, that he imparts grace. That he gave his life so that you might be free. Don't wait until you think you're right next to death before you consider it. Because we don't know how many days we have. Isn't that true? And we know that we want our days to be spent in the light of Christ. So today, if you need to receive Christ, there are so many people around you who could explain more to you. There's so many people around you who could pray with you. I'd be happy to do that. But the belief is a choice that you must make. Jesus has done the work. He's called to you. He's drawn to you. He's revealed his word to you. Believe on his name today. God, we declare these songs of faith to you. And I pray that even the lips of the previous unbelieving would sing them. I pray that those who have been thinking that they're on the fence would, would open up their lips and declare you as Lord, because there is no in-between. There's either for you or against you. I pray that as we, we worship you, as you're lifted up, that they would be drawn to you, Lord, that they would see your love on the cross, that they would see your love through your people. Lord, we know we're broken, and we know we fail, yet we so desire to love like you love. You loved us first, and you've taught us all about what it means to truly give of ourselves. So yes, we're glad and we rejoice, but we also call upon you. You're not done yet, Lord. You're far from done. You're saving souls. You're establishing the saints. You're making us new. And I pray for that newness of life in all. In Jesus' name, amen.